Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. Why is every crisis in America a constitutional crisis? Well, we'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Use that coupon code JUNE. All throughout the month of June 2023, get 25% off because prices do go up July 1st, 2023. So if you're getting this during that time period, get that best deal you can. All those classes, 25% off, lowest price you're ever going to get. Capitalize on it. Keep this podcast free of charge by doing that and get great content. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can go to Spotify for podcasters and become a supporter there. You can click on the shop tab, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Let people know you love it. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Show people you love the show. Comment on YouTube. Click on that super thanks button under the YouTube video. You can support the show financially that way too. And share the podcast around on social media. I love it when you get the audience growing because your friends and your family and your enemies want to listen to the show. That's also great. All right. Well, this is kind of another listener-generated episode, and I do these, right? So, I mean, send me those show requests. But this is one I want, I want to pump up the Tenth Amendment Center today. They're great supporters of my work. Michael Bolden over there and Mike Mahari, they do great work at the Tenth Amendment Center. I can't speak highly enough about them. Um, they started that, or Bolden started that organization 17 years ago, and I've mentioned before, you know, 17 years ago. Um, it's hard to believe, but I first started working with them at least sort of um, a little bit after that, uh, it was around 2009, so not quite 17 years ago, uh, but around 2009, I wrote a couple of pieces for them for their website, and um, they've just been so productive. I mean, basically, you have these two guys punching way above their their weight class. People think the Tenth Amendment Center is this huge, you know, building. All it's just a couple of guys making. Uh, really great content and impacting politics around the United States. They've had impact beyond what you would think a couple of people could do. This is where I say think locally, act locally. Well, that's what they've been doing for a long time, and they've had success doing it. It's just an amazing story to me. And I'm, I mean, it's just, you should go on over to 10th Amendment, give them 50 bucks, give them 25 bucks, give them something so that they can continue to do this great work because when these two aren't doing this anymore, I don't know where that goes. And I mean, they're interested in causes on the left and the right. What they're really interested in is federalism. 
And that's what I want to get into. They sent an email, and I want to read this email because it's so good. These, these two are so good on early American history. And what I mean by that is early American political history going back into the 1760s. Not just nullification in 1798 or nullification, I mean, after that point. They go back to the heart of the issue of nullification. And it gets to this very important question. And it's something that I'm actually covering in my McClanahan Academy live course on commentaries on the Constitution. It's this question of sovereignty. You see, there are two fundamental issues in uh, in American political history and over the Constitution. The two fundamental issues were sovereignty and the nature of the Union. So sovereignty is important, though. Who has the sovereign power? Is it the central government? Is it the states? Is it the people of the states? Is it the people as one whole? Who has the sovereign power in the United States? That's a big question. And it's a big question because if we can't answer that question correctly, then we're going to run into all the problems that we have now. And they, in this email, they point out and identify how dangerous this can be. Because you see, everything's a constitutional crisis because we don't really fundamentally understand what the United States is, what the United States central government is, what the state governments are, and what our role in this whole process is by the people of the states or this amorphous people of the United States. All these terms mean something. When you look at Federalist Number 1, for example, and I'm going past the 1760s. They get to the 1760s, and I'll talk about that. Very important. But you go to 17... Uh, 1787 and the creation of the Federalists. And you have John Jay writing Federalist Number 1. And it is one of the most nationalist statements you're ever going to see. And the thing about it is John Jay knew it wasn't true. He was writing this because he wanted to create some type of American nationalism that would go beyond the Federal Republic that they had in 1787. All right, so we get the Constitution, 1787, September, it's, it's written, goes to the states, it's ratified in 1788 by the people of the states, in the states themselves. Everyone recognized this was the case, except later John Marshall and James Wilson. All right, so John Marshall in McCulloch v. Maryland comes up with this new thing. Well, of course, uh, it was ratified in the states. We, didn't have, we couldn't call a national convention. We had to do it in the states. But... That's because the states ratified it, <laughs> you see. But that gets to the whole other issue, the nature of the union. This issue of sovereignty. Who has the sovereign power? Now, Jefferson would say it's the people, right? Uh, but the people of the states, I think more importantly. But legislative power is incapable of annihilation because it returns to the people at large for their exercise. Now, we have these things called states. These political designations, they're not just counties or shires of the center. They preceded the center. They were there before we had the center. And so, therefore, we have to think about these things as independent political communities. And they operated that way even in the 1760s. They operated that way, as this particular email gets into. So get on their email list. I'm going to pump them up. Get on the email list of the 10th Amendment Center. They send out good content. They do a good podcast. They have good stuff. If you're going to listen to a podcast besides this one, this one should be you know one of your top choices. You should also listen to the 10th Amendment Center podcast. It's very good. And they do a great job recapping all the things they're doing and trying to help with and trying to get 
this issue of federalism first and foremost in people's faces around the United States. I mean, if more, if we had more Ron DeSantis's, right, uh, at the state level, if we had more people that were willing to do these things, to stand up for their states, then we would have a different kind of conversation in the United States with all of these issues that are constitutional crises. They wouldn't be constitutional crises anymore because you would have federal judges saying, yeah, that's a state issue. We can't hear this. Take it back to the state. That's really what should happen. There should be no appealing a state law to federal courts. It shouldn't happen. And I, it should go through the entire state court process. You see, even where I said that the Constitution was destroyed in 1789 when you get the Judiciary Act, what that meant was that you could appeal state Supreme Court decisions to the federal courts, but not just go right to a federal court. You had to go through the process. The thing that really messes that up is Cohen's v. Virginia, where you have uh, a, a decision from a low inferior court appealed right to federal court. They, they just bypass, bypass the state court process. That was a dangerous decision for the future of federalism in America. And that's John Marshall, right? So let me get into this email because it's just so good. I loved reading this email. It says, year in and year out, it seems like we're hammered with one constitutional crisis or another. While most are serious issues, nearly all of them are really just symptoms of a much deeper constitutional crisis that we've been going through for a long time. And it's a crisis that obliterates foundational principles of the American Revolution. But in order to fully grasp the situation, it's essential to understand what we mean by the Revolution. Writing to Thomas Jefferson, John Adams described it this way, quote, What do we mean by the Revolution? The war? That was no part of the Revolution. It was only an effect and consequence of it. The revolution was in the minds of the people, and this was effected from 1760 to 1775 in the course of 15 years before a drop of blood was drawn at Lexington. Now, this is, the, this is an interesting statement. The revolution was that 15-year period, not the war. Not the war. That was just something else. The revolution was about what was happening in the minds of the people. Now, does this mean we had a proposition nation? Notice that he doesn't say that the revolution is 1776 in the Declaration. No, no, no. The revolution was already commenced. It was already there for 15 years. It wasn't the proposition nation. We didn't get some kind of national myth out of this. No. The piece continues. In other letters, Adams often pointed to James Otis Jr.'s thunderous 1761 speech against the writs of assistance as the beginning of the controversy between the colonies and, the, and Great Britain. Here, Otis asserted the view that an act against the Constitution is void. What is that? We call that nullification. And there's a really good book on the Stamp Act, which is 1765, of course. This is years before that, but the Stamp Act, written by Edmund Morgan. He has a whole chapter entitled Nullification, because what the colonial leaders did is just say, yeah, we're not enforcing that. That's illegal against the Constitution. But they point out a very important part about sovereignty in this next bit. In the British system, the king in Parliament held sovereignty, or final authority. As Mike Mahari notes, every act of Parliament was, in essence, part of the Constitution. It was an absurdity to argue an act of Parliament was unconstitutional, since it was sovereign, anything Parliament did was, by definition, constitutional. In fact, parliamentary acts became part of the constitutional structure. This is true. There's a whole. If you go to uh, Westminster and you look, and everyone knows Big Ben. 
There's another tower. That tower is full of parchment. It's full of scrolls. That's the Constitution. It's all the laws of Parliament. And there's things like divorces in there, all kinds of stuff. It's all in there. That's the British Constitution. It's an unwritten Constitution. And it can be amended and it's malleable because of what the courts in England or Great Britain do. They say, so by taking the view that the meaning of even the unwritten British Constitution was above the views and laws of Parliament, Otis was espousing a radical view, one that would become a big part of the revolution in the years to follow. So he's saying an act of Parliament is unconstitutional. See, this is where you start getting into this controversy. This is what Jack Green and others have pointed out, that the American War for Independence really was a constitutional crisis from the beginning because you had these Americans who would eventually side with a written constitutional model. It's important to note. A written constitutional model. That model would be in direct contradiction to the model, the unwritten constitutional model that the British had. And that unwritten constitutional model meant that they could do whatever they wanted. You see. Now, we do have that model in the United States. It's the state constitutions, at least to an extent. When the Constitution is finally signed in Philadelphia in September of 1787, just a couple of weeks later, three weeks, James Wilson of Pennsylvania goes out to the State House yard and he gives a speech and he says, you know, our Constitution, you don't have to worry about that document, this new thing we just created, because if it doesn't say it can do it in the Constitution, the general government can't do it. But the states are different. Anything that is not prohibited is legal. So in the U.S. Constitution, anything that is not expressly granted is illegal. But in the state constitutions, anything that is not expressly prohibited is legal. It's two different ways of looking at it. In essence, the states operated very much like the British system. The general government like a new concept of written constitutionalism in America. Now, the states would eventually get written constitutions too. And maybe we could say, well, they start going funneling into that much more rigid written constitutional model. But James Wilson was arguing something very important here that's often missed by people because they really don't understand American constitutionalism. But the fact that you would call an act of parliament unconstitutional was fundamentally transforming the way that people thought about constitutions. Now, Patrick Henry is going to talk about ancient constitutions, and he would go back to the Magna Carta and the English Bill of Rights when he says ancient constitutions because that was limiting the power of Parliament and the King. He thought it was both. Not just the King, but also the Parliament. You see, because what the 1688 English Bill of Rights supposedly did was limit the power of the King. Not the power of Parliament, but Patrick Henry and others don't think of it that way. They think of it also as limiting the power of Parliament. The piece continues, in 1765, on his 29th birthday, just 11 days after taking his oath of office, Patrick Henry introduced a series of resolutions against the Stamp Act. Like Otis, he took the position that Parliament's power had limits that it was not allowed to cross. He also answered the question of how a people should treat an act of government that's beyond the Constitution and thus void. I love it that they go into the 1760s for nullification, because what they're doing here, again, is showing how long-standing this issue of nullification has been in America. It's beautiful. 
They're not relying on, I mean, you hear this oftentimes, nullification was born by John C. Calhoun in 1832. It was, it was John C. Calhoun that did it because he wanted to protect slavery. This is what you hear. So what they've done is genius. Oh, wait a second here. All right, so you got Calhoun advocating a form of nullification, yes. But what about, they used to talk a lot about Jefferson and Madison in 1798, and that's good too, but they've even gone back further than that and said, wait a second, we go all the way back to the 1760s and start looking at this. What these colonial leaders were doing at that time. They're nullifying everything. I would even say that there was nullification, other examples of it, when you would have Richmond pass legislation in the counties of Virginia, they would ignore it. And we're not following that. That's not, no, we're not doing that here. Sorry, you can do it somewhere else. We're not here. We're not doing that. And we still see this stuff all the time. These are the, the people talk about funny laws. Like, look at all these stupid laws that are on the books. Like, you can't put an ice cream cone in your back pocket. Stuff like that. Well, what does that actually mean? If the law is not enforced, what has happened? It's still on the books. What's actually happened to it? It's been nullified because no one enforces it. That's an act of nullification. Bad laws go away. Stupid laws aren't enforced. And all you have to do is get people to believe it. That law is stupid. We're not doing that. We're not doing that here at all. We're not enforcing that law. The problem is, you get federal courts involved in all this. And then people appeal to federal courts. And then you got the court system and you have real issues. Henry said the people are not bound to yield obedience to any law or ordinance whatsoever that attempted to usurp local authority over such internal policy and taxation. His speech in support of the resolutions was, of course, met with intense opposition. Treason, they cried, but he didn't back down. These are two of many examples of how the American revolutionaries began to think of a constitution as something that exists above the government. They increasingly rejected the idea that government held sovereignty and thus formed the Constitution, and instead conceived of the Constitution as something from the people to put limits on government. Right, but you have to understand, again, for the center in particular. But they did start thinking of it that way, and they often, they can point back to the English Bill of Rights of the exact same thing. This is where Henry said the ancient constitutions. They, they understood limits on power. They understood the Magna Carta. They understood the English Bill of Rights. They understood these things. Thomas Paine described it this way, a constitution is not an act of a government, but of a people constituting a government. Correct. I mean, Paine, as, many, as much as I dislike Paine for some of the things he did, but Paine was right about some things. Look, the American Crisis, I love the first paragraph of American Crisis 1. It's one of the best, actually, sentences ever written, collection of sentences ever written in the founding period. These are the times that tries men's souls. It's beautiful. George Mason summed it up. In all our associations, and all our agreements, let us never lose sight of this fundamental maxim, that all power was originally lodged in, and consequently is derived from, the people. We should wear it as a breastplate and buckle it as our armor. All power comes from the people. The people of what, though, becomes a, real, becomes a real issue. And, of course, this is where you start getting the nationalists and the federalist arguments. Well, we got one people here. No, no, no. No. As John Taylor Caroline said, you know, America for Americans is like utopia for utopians. It doesn't exist. 
There's no one people, and everyone recognized that. Everyone knew it. But it's not politically expedient for the nationalists who want to get their way on everything to say that's the case. This radical change in the views of the people, the real American Revolution, created a constitutional crisis with the British, who expressly claimed power of the colonies in all cases whatsoever. Right. And, and Paine said that in the American Crisis. To exercise power in all cases whatsoever is the very definition of slavery, he called it. If you have power over somebody in all cases whatsoever, that's slavery. You have no recourse. And what has the general government done? They've done that exact thing. They have power over you in all cases whatsoever. In practice, writes Mahari, the 18th century British system rested on a living, breathing constitution. The government itself defined and enforced whatever limits it might have. Essentially, it was an unlimited it was unlimited in power and authority. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Mahari notes, for all practical purposes, the federal government today operates without any limits at all. Everything the federal government does and approves is considered constitutional. Exactly true. I mean, this is exactly right. They have complete power over anything they say they have power over. Is that really the American model? Is that really the American tradition? This is why you need to support these guys. They do really good work. It's funny, though, you know, every now and then uh, Michael Bolden will post that he's called a radical leftist by these conservatives and a radical conservative by these leftists, a trumper by these leftists. I mean, it's hilarious how all this works out because people don't understand these things. They don't really understand federalism and how this is supposed to work. In practice, the people themselves treat federal power much the same way the British wanted the colonies to treat British power. That is, the government pretty much does whatever it wants until the government determines that the government must stop or should stop. The same situation applies whether the people vote the bums out or sue in federal court or march on Washington, D.C. In all these situations, it's about convincing the government to stop doing what the government shouldn't have been doing in the first place. True. But you see, the narrative changed in D.C. The narrative changed a long time ago. It changed when we had... We stopped having arguments about constitutional questions and just started allowing special interests and other people to write bills for us. And then we rely on the system where the federal courts sort it all out. That's the unwritten model. That's the British model. And that's essentially what we've adopted in America. From the center, we don't call it that. But this is why we have so much angst because we've got an illegal system being foisted on the United States while we have this other system that's there and we have these arguments about the other system, but the, the, the illegal system doesn't care. That's the whole problem. It's all illegal. They do it anyways. He says, that's not how you describe the land of the free. It's a population on its knees begging for scraps. When it comes to the Constitution itself, things might even be worse. The vast majority of the people believe the Constitution means what the Supreme Court tells us it means until it changes its mind. In other words, the federal government gets to determine the extent of its own powers. In practice, that's giving the government final authority, which is not much different than the British view of sovereignty at the time of the Revolution. It's, it's the exact same thing. We have the British system now operating in the United States central government. And they believe that all of us and all the states are their dominion. This is why Hamilton stood up in June, June 17th, 1787. As you're getting this, just few days after that speech and said, you know what? 
We need a Senate for life. We need a president for life, essentially. We need these things because we're going to get it anyways. Might as well skip over all the heartache and just go right to it. The system naturally inclined to that, particularly when you had people in the judicial branch that allowed this to happen. You know who allows all this to happen, though? It's the Congress. The Congress punted all its responsibility, began doing that after the Lincoln Revolution of 1865. It began punting almost all of its responsibility and kicking it over to the courts or the executive branch. This is how it started. Now, the radical Republicans resisted executive power during Reconstruction, at least for a time. They didn't think the president should have any. And you had in the 19th century these relatively weak presidents. It wasn't until you get to McKinley and the modern executive that you really start seeing that shift, and definitely with Teddy Roosevelt. But you did see it with Lincoln, too. And so we start, and Congress just keeps punting and punting and punting. It doesn't matter. Founders such as Thomas Jefferson and Richard Henry Lee said this kind of elective despotism was not what they fought for. And this represents our true constitutional crisis today. That's the bad news. But there's a silver lining too. The odds may seem stacked against us, but things can be turned around. We have the wisdom, the, adva the advice, the experience, and the strateg strategy from the founders and old revolutionaries. As John Dickinson told us, it's ultimately up to the people to protect and defend their own constitution, whether the government likes it or not. It's their, it's, it is their duty to watch and their right to take care that the constitution be preserved, or in the Roman phrase, on perilous occasions, to provide that the republic receive no damage. It won't be quick or easy, but as Samuel Adams put it, all might be free if they valued freedom and defended it as they ought. Now, again... How do we do this? Well, you think locally, act locally. This is what these guys have been doing for 17 years. And you have to start at the bottom and you got to protect it from that way up to the top. That's the most important thing to do. But again, go out. That's all I wanted to you know, promote these guys. Go out and support their work. Support, you know, I, I, thank you for supporting what I do, but also support what they do too because there's so few of these organizations and people that do this stuff the right way and they're doing it the right way. And that's... I mean, that's beautiful. So uh, if you can, you know, throw a few pennies their way too and support them over at 10th Amendment Center. All right, see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.